know that there is going to come a time out there where this wound will begin to heal and you'll start to feel better. As long as you don't give up, there will come a day when it starts to feel lighter. It never stops hurting. It never stops being true that we went through this horrible thing. But God's promises start showing up and he's close to the brokenhearted. It's probably not one of your favorite promises in the Bible, at least not the first part. You know, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Yeah, I don't like it either. (laughs) But aren't you glad he included a part B? But take heart, I have overcome the world. Dr. Lee Warren, a neurosurgeon, says that we'll all eventually face that massive thing. It'll be different for all of us, but it won't be easy. In his new book, Hope is the First Dose, our guest points us to how, with some self-brain surgery, we can turn our hopelessness into hopefulness. You might even learn a new word as you listen. Well, Lee, welcome back to the uh, morning conversation. Thank you. It's good to be back with you, Stan. Looking forward to talking to you about your latest book, Hope is the First Dose. Whenever I think about you, listen to your podcast some, I'm just like going, how does this guy have time to do what he does? Like picture neurosurgeons being a little busy. How do you have time for all this? I don't have time not to do it. I think mm-hmm. it's just like they say about prayer, like you, you don't have time not to pray. For no. me, the first part of my morning every day is is my quiet time with the Lord and, mm-hmm. and prayer and worship and, and all of that. And then I write to figure my life out, uh, figure stuff out that's going on in my own life. And that out of that spring podcasting and communicating with people around the world with the newsletter and all of that. So for me, it's just, it's the way I start my day every day. So I, I don't know what I would do if I didn't do that. <laughs> so was writing always easy for you? Like for me, I love journaling as far as its impact on my life, but it did not come easy for me. I had to like work at it, but what about you? Well, I think writing as a means of communicating yeah. was always a, a natural thing for me. I, I was a kid who was raised in a, a home where my dad like was very, he, he wasn't rigid or authoritarian, but you, you sort of did what dad said. Right. And I would communicate with my dad things that I couldn't say to him because I didn't want to talk back to him. And I would write him notes and write him letters. And we we had this, this mm. conversation that came out of writing. And so I always had this insight that I could say things on paper better than I could huh. say them with my mouth. And, and then when I, you know, after I got through life a little bit, I went to war and we've talked before about all the things I saw in the Iraq war. And, and I came home from that war with some stuff going on in my heart I didn't understand and went through some PTSD and all of that. And and in writing, learned to unpack emotional things that were happening. And Hmm. and, uh, my wife helped me come to that understanding. So I learned how to write um, in a way that other people could read and not just my dad and started writing books. And, you know, uh, Philip Yancey said he read a, uh, I wrote a self-published book about the Iraq war that Philip Yancey got a hold of. And he said, Hey, if you write this, like it's not for your mom, then I think we could help you get it published. And and so I spent a couple of years and learned how to really write. He helped me. And and that became my first book. I think journaling is good for everyone. That's the conclusion I came to. Like you have, you have some people who they think a lot, but they don't necessarily think everything through. Like their thoughts just kind of circle on them. Journaling is good for them. And you have some people more like me, honestly, (laughs) it's more uh, measured in how many thoughts I have, but it draws that thinking out of me. So it helps to kind of create more thoughts and clearer thoughts. So wherever you are in a spectrum, just think that journaling is is, is a great discipline. I think that's right. Hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah, so good. So, okay, your, your latest book, Hope 
Hope is the first dose. So talk to us a little bit about what inspired the book for you. So my previous book, I've seen the interview that we've talked about before, came out of uh, taking care of all these patients that had fatal diagnoses like brain tumors and and brain injuries and all of that. And and I was trying to write a book to help, help people come to grips with how to find hope again when they were facing impossible situations. And while I was writing that, we lost our son, Mitch. He died in 2013. Mm. I had this transformation from somebody who thought I was helping other people to being a guy who needed somebody else to help me Mm. find my feet and find my faith again. And and so that book, I realized after it came out that that I told you sort of that we made it through losing a child and Mm -hmm. that we found our way back to faith and that we found our way back to hope. But I didn't tell you how. As a guy who tries to be a good doctor to my patients, I thought I owed my readers and myself and my family really a a plan. Like, here's the way that we put our lives back together. And it turns out to be consistent with what people have done all throughout scripture Hmm. and thousands of people that I've met now through podcasting and writing. Like, there's a path that you can follow, a treatment plan, if you will, since I'm a doctor, that'll get you back to hope when the hardest things happen. And once you get back to hope, then you can actually put your life back together. And that's why I called it hope is the first dose. You talk about this thought of uh, the massive thing. So uh, what what do you mean by the massive thing? Sounds a little ominous to me, but. (laughs) It does. But you know, it starts with this understanding that nobody gets through life unscathed. I mean, I, I highly doubt that there's any 200-year-old listeners out there listening to us because something happens to all of us in our life and it's either death or somebody we love passes away or we get a diagnosis or sometimes it's not even medical things. It's these, it's a death of a dream or Mm -hmm. it's something you've been chasing your whole life. That's just not going to happen. Or or somebody does something to you, abuses you or leaves you or something. But, but all of us have something just like Jesus said in John 16, 33, when he said in this world, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be problems. In our family, we call them the massive things, the TMT, these big things that happen in your life that can really throw you off of what you thought you knew your life was going to look like. And so for us, it, it, it was this conversation we would have about once this massive thing happens to you, what do you do next? And I think it dawned on me at some point that we teach everybody how to do CPR in case somebody has a heart attack in front of us. And we teach people how to change flat tires, you know, if they have a flat tire. And we teach people to stop, drop and roll if they catch on fire. But I've never caught on fire, but somebody gave me a plan for what to do when that happens. And so I thought we need a plan for what happens when the massive thing happens because it's going to happen. Mm, yeah, that's so good. Yeah, they, it's never a question of if, but what and, and when, you know, along the way. Yeah. 100% record that uh, all of us are going to kind of walk through yeah. trauma and walk through hard stuff. And then to, to acknowledge that, that's so good. So not only have you not also escaped, you know, the hard thing with a loss of a child, uh, which is horrific, but yeah. you... Uh, I was just thinking again by your career, brain surgeon, like I don't, that's not like an elective surgery. (laughs) That's not, I mean, if someone's coming to you, it's bad news, right? So you walk with lots of people every single day that are dealing with a significant trauma in their life. And so you've seen it up close and personal. You write about four different types of people according to yeah. the way that they respond. Tell us about those four different types of people. Yeah, so and I was trying to trying to understand what I was going through. I started paying attention to people around me and patients that I was treating and what they were going through. And I noticed we sort of fall into four categories. And, and the, the first one are people that really irritate most of us. That there's this <laughs> group of people who are kind of, uh, I call them untouchables in the book. These these people that seem to they've all got it figured out. And they 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 come into something with a strong faith and they have their 
beliefs all dialed in and no matter what seems to happen to them, they get through it unscathed and, and they seem to be okay and resilient to any type of trauma or tragedy or other massive thing. And so those people I called untouchables. And then mm-hmm. the opposite of the untouchable is this group that we call crashers. And, and they basically seem like everything's pretty solid as long as everything's going their way. And then when they hit that massive thing, their life kind of comes apart and and they become really destitute or hopeless almost in their spirit. And what I realized is there's a group of those folks, Stan, that don't get better on the emotional side, even if they survive the medical problem that they came through. Even if they make it through their diagnosis, they're still kind of wrecked. And you've you've known people like this, that they get cancer and 20 years later, they're still kind of bitter and angry and suspicious and worried that they might get cancer again and never really heal from it, even if they survive it. And so those are the crashers and and the untouchables and the crashers are the two polars, the two extremes of this. And the most common group is what I would call dippers. I think this is what most of us are, um, where we hit something hard and it messes us up for a while and we lose our way and we yell at God and we find out and mm. we become afraid and and then somehow we figure it out again we find some something solid to stand on and, and it kind of turns things back around and we end up holding on to god's promises and, and finding our way back to a place that looks hopeful again and, and i can tell you honestly if you lose a child or if your spouse dies there's not going to be a, a an okay for you that's the same as it was before mm. right you're going to even if you find your way back to being happy again it won't be the same type of happiness that you used to have it'll be different and that's okay, but you find your way back to some place where your life has meaning and value and purpose, right? Those people we call we call dippers. They dip down, they find their way back. And then the most surprising group is what I call climbers. These are people that are already down and out. They don't have hope. They don't have faith. They don't have love. And they're already down and out. And something happens bad in their life. And the prototype is a guy that I wrote about in my previous book named Joey, who his, his dad abandoned him when he was a child. And his mom died when he was a baby and he was a drug addict and he was in prison and all these things happened to him. And then he found out that he had brain cancer and I was taking care of him. And he was, he's, he approached finding out that he had brain cancer by basically saying, of course I do. You know, why wouldn't I? Everything else happens in my life that's bad. And the interesting thing with him was somebody came alongside him, his grandmother, and then a chaplain, and then and then somebody loved him. And, and during the last year of his life, when he was literally dying, he, he found Jesus and he, and he sort of came alive. And he told me shortly before he died that his last year had been his best year ever. Mm-hmm. And it was because he found meaning, he found something to believe in, and he found love and, and all those things. And so there are some people who these massive things actually turn them around and they wind up better than they started. And what I learned from looking at all those people is that the people who do the best when they encounter massive things, Stan, are the people who have the the least amount of coupling of emotion from circumstance. So in other words, if you think that your circumstances have to be wrapped up and have a bow on them and be perfect for you to be happy, then you're going to be in trouble because everything that you can define your life and happiness on short of God and God's promises can be taken from you. And so if, if if you have to have a certain spouse or a certain amount of money or a certain career or a certain lifespan or a certain ability to do some things in order to be happy, then the bad news is there's going to come a time when you don't have that thing anymore and then you can't be happy anymore. Mm-hmm. But if you build your life on things that can't be taken away from you and you separate emotion from circumstance, then you can learn how to take hope even in the darkest moments. Mm-hmm. Wow. So good. God is always at work among us. In the book of Matthew, Jesus cautions us to build our house on a firm foundation, on a rock instead of sand. While it looked like Ken and Mitchell had built his life on the rock as he served in ministry, 
he secretly battled a sin addiction that over time eroded his foundation. My wife and I we went to Saturn State together and got married and laid a poor foundation. Ken lived Matthew 7, 26 and 27. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. When their marriage fell, it ended in divorce. But God. God changed my heart, told me to love my wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God convicted Ken of that sin struggle. Ken authentically repented, found freedom from his addiction, and then sought to restore his faith foundation. As Ken pursued Christ and then his wife, God also rebuilt their marriage. We got remarried a year and a half after being divorced, and so we've been restored. And we get to work with people in marriages, and when people say, yeah, my wife left me and you have no idea what it's like, I say, yes, I do. Now God moves through Ken and his wife as they serve other couples out of their experience and remain rooted on the rock. My Bridge Radio, celebrating God at work among us. Share your story and join the conversation in the Connect Now section at mybridgeradio.net. So, Lee, uh, you know, being a doctor, you use a lot of doctor analogies. I was kind of smiling throughout our conversation already because, you know, I'm an old former athlete. And so a lot of athletic analogies kind of find their way into my conversations. But as we go back to the conversation we had earlier this morning when we were talking about the massive thing, and you talk about it in terms of a treatment plan. And in that treatment plan, you say that hope is the first dose, uh, which, again, lays into the title of the book. So what does that hope look like? Honestly, it's there's several definitions of hope on the scientific side. This might surprise some of the listeners. There's been a lot of research into hope, and it turns out that hopefulness is the most important aspect of recovering from just about anything that you can go through. And hopelessness turns out to be one of the deadliest things that known to man is deadlier than cancer because hopeless people don't survive their illnesses when hopeful people do. Sometimes they spend more time in hospitals, they take more medication, they lose their marriages more often, they have more financial troubles. Hopelessness breeds all kinds of problems in our lives. And hopefulness opens doors and creates opportunities and heals relationships and makes people better in every way that that can be measured other than length of life with certain cancers. So so when the researchers look at hope, they've defined it as you can have hope if you have two things. And they say agency, which means the ability to do something about the situation that you're in. You have to have agency and you have to have a pathway. So there has to be a a reasonable path towards the thing that you're hoping for. So that's what the scientists say. And I discovered that not only agency and pathways are important, but two things from the Bible, from clearly looking at what happens in the Bible when people are hopeless and then they find hope. And in my own experience is two other things, memory and movement. And that's why I always say hope is a verb. Hope is an action word, because in order to engage hope and find it, You have to remember that this isn't the first hard thing you've been through. Mm. And whoever's listening out there, it's true. You've had a problem before and you didn't die. You've been through Mm. something difficult before and you made it through. You thought it was impossible before and it turned out to be possible or you wouldn't still be listening. So you have to remember, God's done some things on my behalf in the past. And therefore, I can trust that he'll do some things again in the future for me. Right. That's number one. Mm -hmm. And then movement is the second one. Movement means you've got to do something. You've got to start moving towards the light 
even while it's still dark. You've got to start remembering and recalling to mind those promises before you can really start believing them. You got to start moving forward when God calls you to even when it feels impossible to get there. And that's how you produce hope. So hope is not a magic trick. And it's not something that we sit and wait and and wish that it would show up. It's something that clearly throughout the Bible, we can see it happening where you decide to take hope through the action of memory and movement. And it's reproducible. It happens every time. Mm -hmm. The best story is in Lamentations chapter three, where the guy, the lamenter, we'll call him, because he's never identified as who, who actually wrote it. Some people think it's Jeremiah, the prophet, but we don't know. But the lamenter is in the middle of a five-chapter story in Lamentations chapter 3, and the first two chapters are terrible. Like the city's been ransacked, and the king's been murdered, and the women have all been pillaged, and the children are starving to death in the streets, and this the story is playing out, and it's awful. And you get to chapter 3, and he's just described all these things that are happening to all the people, and he says, I am the man who has suffered misery. Like he, he makes it all about himself. Like I'm the guy that's going through this hard thing. And he goes all through the things that trauma does to you. It breaks my teeth. It grinds my bones into dust. It, it's breaking my back. God is punishing me and all this hopeless stuff. And he comes to the climax where he says, I have forgotten what it feels like to have hope. He's, he's as bad as he can be. And the very next verse, he says this, but in this, I take hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. He reminds himself stand of something that's true. I'm going to take this hope because I remember that God's gotten us through things before. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forgotten us. He's still going to be with us. And he makes that decision. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he says, I have hope. So he chooses an action word, take hope, grab it, do something about it, move towards it. And the interesting thing about that, the most important thing about it is that happens in chapter three of a five-chapter book, and the story isn't better at the end of the book. It's still in the middle of the problem. And so that tells us that we can choose to take hope even while the problem, especially while the problem is still happening, right? We don't have to wait for it to get better before we can decide whether we trust God or not. We have to decide we trust Him and wait for it to get better. Hmm. I was reminded of a verse, a couple of verses I've chewed on over the years that get at what you're talking about there in the, in the Psalms, where the psalmist talks to himself, which I thought, man, we need to, to kind of, he's reminding himself and reminding his soul. And he says, why so downcast, oh, my soul? Yep. Put your hope in God. <laughs> you will again, I will again praise him, right? There's, we're going to get through yep. this. By God's grace, we're going to get through this to the other side, and we're going to find ourselves praising him again, it's kind of reminding himself and putting his hope where it needs to be, and great insight. Thank you. You know, sometimes when you talk to people, uh, I talk to people, read books, they kind of pit happiness versus joy, right? So they kind of, well, this is happiness versus joy. This right. is joy versus happiness. So you made up a new word. <laughs> Happification. <laughs> Happification. Happification. So, yeah, yep. so uh, since it's your word. <laughs> Define it for us. So, happification is this this notion that, that we want a verb, right? We want that we want a, an action word when we're trying to find hope. And for me, it was I was always this guy before I went to war, before I lost a son, before I went through all these hard things. I was always this guy that was optimistic and it's going to be okay and we're, it's, everything's going to work out. And and then all of a sudden, my life started not working out. And one of the things I realized after Mitch died is I was sad and and I was and I didn't think it was going to be okay anymore and I, and I lost some things that used to be important to me but we all have this worldview and in our worldview 
we see the the world through a certain lens and for me that lens was was not working anymore and 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 it and i realized that in order to start feeling like i used to feel all the time and find my way back to this sort of place where i could be happy again i was going to need to do something to to take some sort of action and i just almost jokingly called it this happification this this i got to find some way to get myself back to a happy state again and i think it's important to parse that out when you say joy versus happiness i think it's one of the great tricks of the devil to tell us that we're not supposed to be happy as christians or to be to care about being happy and we talk about joy or blessedness in this sort of sort of spiritualized way like oh it's okay to be miserable because we've got something better coming and just hang in there and it'll be okay but if you look at what jesus actually said in the beatitudes the the word in the greek when he says blessed are they who this and blessed are they who that the word actually is makarios and that translates most literally to happy Happy. And blessed is, a, is a, a word that the translators made up to try to spiritualize it. But Jesus was literally saying, if you learn how to be humble and you learn how to be meek and you learn how to be all these other things, you'll be happier than if you don't. He's literally saying that he came here, John 10, 10. I came, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He's talking about not some spiritualized thing that we can wait for in the afterlife. He's talking about now. And it's the John 10, 10 is the, the after answer to John 16, 33, which says in this world, you're you're going to have trouble. John 10, 10 says, I came here in this hard world so that you can have an abundant life. So for me, I needed not to find some sanguine joy. I needed to find happiness again, even though I had lost my son. And I try to I try to tell that story in the book in a way to tell you that you can be broken and sad and grieving and bereaved and you'll always be that thing, but you can also be happy again. You can. It's possible. And you need a plan to do that. And that's what I try to give you in the book. Mm, wow. Going back to uh, some of the analogies that you kind of pull from the medical world, you yeah. talk about doing a biopsy of your thoughts. Like, So we're all familiar about biopsies, yeah. right? You're taking a piece of something yeah. and you're seeing what's there and it's a healthy still or is there an issue in there? So how, how do we how do we take a biopsy of our thoughts? Yeah. So we call it self-brain surgery. So, mm. <laughs> so you're right. I mean, I use a lot of metaphors. Yeah. I'm obviously a doctor, Love but surgery, it sounds like a little positive positive thinking kind of deal, but it's really true. I can put you in a functional MRI scanner and I could ask you to think about something that makes you happy and I could show you what your neurotransmitters are doing in real time when you think about something that makes you happy. And then I could ask you to think about something that makes you sad or angry and I could show you a picture of your brain changing its chemistry when you choose to think about a different thing. And it's really true. We know now that your brain directly influences the neurotransmitter production in your brain, which is what creates the way that you feel. And not just that, it creates what your hormones statuses are and how every cell in your body react to what you think about. We know now that you are in control to a very high degree of what happens in your body. And there's even studies now done in mice and then subsequently in humans of holocaust survivors in Vietnam, uh, PTSD people from Vietnam. This is terrifying a little bit, but we know now that you can take a mouse and you can expose that mouse to a certain smell, a cherry blossom smell, for example. And when they smell it and react to it, you can shock them and teach them to be afraid of that smell. Hmm. Okay. And then they found that the offspring of those mice who were never exposed to the shock are also afraid of the smell of cherry blossoms hmm. which, and down to four generations. And what that means is we can genetic, we genetically change our bodies when we expose ourselves to certain things, when we're afraid of certain things 
is when we encounter certain things and those experiences and feelings are passed on to our children. That whole science now is called epigenetics. And so we know this is what Jesus and what God was talking about in the Bible when he talks about generational curses, when certain sins or certain problems pass on to our children. It's not that he's punishing our children. It's that our DNA changes in response to what we do in our lives and what we think about. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about self-brain surgery, he does a long answer to say this. The fact is that about five to one, the things that you think about, the, the things that pop into your head when you encounter something aren't true. They're five to one negative thoughts that don't mm -hmm. turn out to be true. And, and if you react to those negative thoughts, then you're starting a chain reaction of reactions to things that were never true in the first place. Like after you lose a son, you'll have thoughts like, I'm a bad dad. I should have been there. This is my fault somehow. I can never be happy again because I've lost a child. All those thoughts pop into your head. Most of them aren't true. And so the bad, the thought biopsy technique is just I teach people to say, knowing that most of our thoughts aren't true and knowing the devastating consequences of reacting to thoughts that aren't true, even in how we raise our children and how they grow up, we need to learn to put a little pause in there. I'm doing a timeout sign with my hands if you're listening on the radio. <laughs> we, we, we learn to put a little pause in there where we say, wait, I'm having this thought that says, it's my fault that my son died. I should have been there. I should have done something different. And instead of reacting to that thought, I grab it and put it under the microscope like a surgeon would. And I say, is that thought true? And if it's true, is it something I need to, to do something about or I need to react to or what can I do to make it better rather than just running with the worst case scenario, automatic negative thought that pops in. And learning to put that little pause in there, that little thought biopsy puts you back in control with the higher level functions of your brain, your frontal lobes that can make better decisions than your limbic system and your amygdala can, those automatic things that happen put you in fight or flight mode and, and you start reacting to things that aren't even true. Hmm. And so learning how to biopsy your thoughts and get back in control of them before you react to them really creates an opportunity for you to find your way back to hope instead of despair when hmm. something happens. Hmm. You're talking, I, I was reminded of a public service kind of commercial when I was growing up. This is your brain. <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah. this is your brain on this drug, right? <laughs> As you're talking, I'm thinking, no, this is your brain. And you can actually physically see it, visibly see it with the tech that you use. <laughs> this is your brain on falsehood and fears. This is your brain on truth, right? Yep, yep. So it's kind of interesting. Actually, talk about that. that in the book a little. I use that same analogy in the book. Ah. When TM, it's amazing that we had the same thought. Yeah. It's in there. When your brain is in the skillet because of the massive thing is frying it up, then you have two choices. You can leave it in there and let it get cooked to a crisp and let your life be burned up by the TMT, or you can get it out. And, and if you get it out, it's still going to be cooked a little bit and still going to be injured a little bit and singed a little bit, but it's still usable. Hmm. And your life has still can have purpose and meaning, just like that egg if you cook it long enough that it's still valuable before it burns all the way up. Sing to God, sing in praise of His name. Rejoice before Him, His name is the Lord. Psalm 68 verse 4. I know you Join us Sundays on MyBridge Radio for uplifting worship music all day long. There's someone listening to us this morning who maybe even today, yesterday, this week, they entered into that TMT experience. It's the massive thing has happened in their life. They've lost a loved one. They've lost their health. They've lost their job. And they're in the thick of it. What would you speak to them? So the first thing is, I'm sorry that that happened. Very first thing you need to know is when you're wounded, whatever the source of it is, even if it's self-inflicted. I mean, sometimes these things that happen is because of something happened that we did. So no matter what the source of your wound 
wound is. All wounds need first aid. They need immediate treatment to stop the bleeding. And, and when it's an emotional wound, the first thing is give yourself space and time to hurt. You, you need to you need to let this hurt. And if you don't let it hurt and you if you do something to stop it too early, like drinking or something that's going to cover up the pain, but not let it heal, then you're going to create some secondary wounds that you don't have to create. So the first thing is take a breath, get around people who care about you and let this let this healing process begin by experiencing what you're supposed to feel, which is it's normal to hurt and grieve. The second thing is know that there is going to come a time out there where this wound will begin to heal and you'll start to feel better. Like no matter how devastating the event is, all wounds begin a healing process eventually. And so there is a time out there where you can count on if you hang on and don't give up. There's going to come a time when the light starts getting brighter again. It's going to come. The Bible uses two Old Testament words for hope, and both of them relate to this notion or this metaphor of waiting. So there's there's kavah and another word that I can't think of right now. And those two words basically mean this tension that you hold when you're waiting for God to show up and get you through something. And it's, it's, it's like the, the metaphor of holding on tightly to a rope that's stretched out and you know it's going to break eventually and release the tension. And that's what it's like in the first days after this massive thing happens. Mm. You're, you're surrounded by pain and darkness, but you can feel the tension building. You know that it's, it can't stay like it is forever. It's got to start healing and you're going to hold on tight to that rope because it's going to lead you back up out of that pit of despair that you're in, that, that, that pain that you're in. And as long as you don't give up, there will come a day when it starts to feel lighter. And I can tell you this because I'm 10 years into losing my son now, almost 10 years next month. And in that 10 years, it never stops hurting. It never stops being true that we went through this horrible thing. But God's promises start showing up and he's close to the brokenhearted and he's got a plan for you. And this wound will begin to heal and you can just hold on tight and you know it's going to come and don't give up. That's what I would say today. So good. We've spoken to the person this morning that uh, is going through trauma right now. There are many people also who have someone that they know that is going through. They don't necessarily know how to respond. Like They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to do the wrong thing. Coach us up here a little bit this morning. So what would you say? Yeah. So I've joked that I'm going to write another book of, of things not to say when somebody <laughs> loses a child. But... Right. Yes. So the first thing is like you can know that there is immense value in showing up and putting your arms around people and saying something simple like this is so hard and I'm so sorry. Those two things never hurt anybody. They always help. Hmm. And you want to show up and you want to be there. I had a friend named Zane who showed up at our house shortly after we heard about Mitch dying. He gave us a big hug and he said, you're going to need something at some point and I'm going to be over in that corner. And when you need something, you tell me and I'll go do it. Hmm. And he showed up five or six days in a row. He never said a word. He didn't get in the way. Hmm. And he ran errands for us when we needed something. He went and got you no know, water and toilet paper, anything that somebody needed. He took care of it. And that was one of the most helpful things is just hmm. somebody to show up and sit down and be there. And so I think that's important. Just learn to show up. The second thing, though, is if you're a Christian, especially, I suspect everybody listening is make sure that if you're going to give somebody advice or counsel, that you've got good theology behind it. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that we say to people, well-intentioned, things like, I guess God needed another angel, or I guess God needed your son more than you did. Those things are always harmful, and they're bad theology. First of all, people don't become angels when they die. Like, that's, they don't. They're, angels are different than people. So the idea that God needed another angel, so he murdered my son to make another angel, is not helpful. It doesn't make anybody feel better. It hurts people. So don't say that. 
Hmm. And then things like God needed him more than you do. And you say to yourself, like, God has the entire universe. He is the cattle on a thousand hills and all the stars answer him. But he needed to take my son. Hmm. You know, he needed my son more than I did. I don't believe that. So so things like that, we say them because we want it. We don't know what to say. So we find ourselves saying those things. Just make sure that what you're saying has the potential to help first and that it's true. And so just be careful with those words. Don't quote scriptures that may be helpful later, like Romans 8, 28. It's a famous one. All things work together for good for those that love the Lord. That's a terrible thing to say the day after your son dies. Hmm. It's just It just doesn't help. But what happens, interestingly, Stan, over time, is those things become helpful later. And I can give you a good example with, with me after losing Mitch. Like Romans 8, 28 was horrible to hear right off the bat. I couldn't see how it could ever be good that I lost my son. But I started writing and I started podcasting and writing books books and all that out of the pain of trying to help my family. And twice in the 10 years since we lost our son, I've gotten an email from somebody that said, today was the day that I was going to kill myself because I was so hopeless. And something you wrote made me decide not to commit suicide today. Mm-hmm. And so that th- there's two people out there that I know of that are alive because my son died. Mm-hmm. That's not a good thing that I lost my son. It won't ever be a good thing. But that's a way that God keeps that promise and starts to redeem some of the things that happen to us and show us that there are good things in the world that have happened because we stayed faithful and kept persisting after we lost Mitch. And and in a way, to me, that's something that Mitch would be proud of. Like His life has value and purpose 10 years beyond its earthly extent because he's keeping people alive out here because his dad has given people hope after learning how to find hope again after he died. So that's a a way that Romans 8.28 is true. But you can't see that or hear it the day after it happens. Mm. You got to hear that later. You know, my uh, mom passed away a handful of years ago unexpectedly. It was very traumatic. Mm. I've always remembered, I got this very short two-word text from a friend who lives out of the state now. And I've never forgotten it. It blessed me, actually. (laughs) All, All he said was, death sucks. Yeah. It was always said. That's not a bad message. No, it's not. No, it's not. And I was like, yeah, it just, I mean, it wasn't magical words. It wasn't full theology. Actually, it is is biblical, actually. Absolutely. Um, You know, but but he just related to me briefly in my pain and I didn't try to make it all better, but it just so ministered me. I, I remember to this day. You know, so that's some of the best. This just this is terrible. I'm sorry this is happening. I don't know what to say to you. Those are those are helpful things. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you do again for uh, taking the time to to again. I think about was it Second Corinthians? God's given you to to meet you in the midst of your pain. Uh, yeah. You've been very good, great steward of it to really share yeah. it in in pretty pretty dynamic way. So excited about this new book. Got a couple friends actually I know that I just found out lost a kid. So I will be using this book to extend what you've kind of given uh, to some lives. So thank you for thank you, Stan. Thank you for being on today. The pleasure to be back with you. God bless you, Stan. Thank you. I just love that Dr. Warren doesn't sugarcoat it. Sometimes the promises in scripture aren't what we need to hear in the immediate moment. But with time to heal and process, we are able to see how God really is at work. And that gives me great hope. If you want to learn more about Dr. Lee Warren and his new book, Hope is the First Dose, we've got links in our episode notes.